the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024 program. And uh, we thank you very much for tuning in. should be a very interesting program. Uh, we have a great guest back with us tonight and on a topic that uh, is dear to the heart of probably most Space Show listeners. A couple of really quick announcements tonight. Uh, we're on a 60-minute format. So if you would like to talk to our guest, John Mankins, Please, please, please make sure you contact us before we're ending the show. Okay, so that always helps. Um, and uh, the toll-free number for those of you who would like to call us is 866-687-7223. And, of course, you can use email, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. A couple of other things I would like to... Uh, Call to your attention, uh, Hotel Mars has a parabolic arc on tomorrow uh, about the recent uh, comments Elon Musk made about Starship. So that should be interesting with Doug. And on Friday, Paul Szymanski is with us on National Security Space. He's a returning space show guest on the topic. And then on Sunday, Dr. Peter Haig from the U.K. is with us about some of his recent Substack articles which are interesting and relevant to commercial space and new space. Uh, and then we, we go on from there. All of the guests are on the schedule on the website, website newsletter. So if you have any questions and if you have any suggestions, please let me know. Uh, we're happy to field your suggestions and work to get those suggestions to be guests on the space show. So um, don't forget that our newsletter goes out early in the morning, Monday, 6 o'clock West Coast time. If you want to get it, make sure I have your email address. We do have a store. And uh, then don't forget also that we are listener-supported nonprofit 501c3 radio with one giant leap foundation. And listener-supported radio means those of you listening, uh, because you donate to us, mostly through PayPal, uh, we're able to do these shows and have great guests for the program tonight, Dr. John Mankin. There's a PayPal button in the upper right corner. That is the easiest way to donate to us at the upper right corner of our homepage. If you want to use Zelle and you're using a United States bank, the email address is david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And if you mail us a check in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, please mail it uh, to our Las Vegas address. It is on the PayPal button 
make the check payable to one giant leap foundation. And we do have sponsors. They have the banner ad, and they get PR statements on longer shows. Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox Corporation, Dr. Heim Benaroya and his lunar development books, the Space Foundation, and John Jossie's excellent blog on space settlement that he also double posts onto the Space Show blog from time to time, Space Settlement Progress. And our guest tonight is Dr. John Mankins. He's been with us before. I'm sure most of you are familiar with him. His full bio is on the Space Show website. But John is an entrepreneur. He's an internationally recognized leader in tech and systems innovation and management. Uh, he currently serves as the co-chair of the International Academy of Astronautics Permanent Committee on Space Solar Power. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight because NASA just issued a report that many believe is pretty pessimistic on space solar power. So we wanted to talk to John about that. Welcome to the program, John. How are you again? Uh, I'm just fine, David. Thank you very much for having me on the on the show. So for those that saw the Space News article by Jeff Faust, they know pretty much what your thoughts are on the NASA report, but probably most of our listeners haven't seen that article by Jeff. Tell, tell us what you thought about the report. I've heard from listeners that they're really, really upset about it. Do they have a grounds to be really, really, really upset about it? <laughs> um, so the the um, I I presume your your listeners are all pretty familiar with the context um, that you know there's been a great deal of activity during the last uh, half dozen years relating to space solar power. Uh, with the increasing launches and, and reducing cost due to the reusable Falcon 9 and the Falcon 9 Heavy, the development of Starship, the ongoing development of, of the uh, new Glenn and, and other reusable launchers around the world, everyone's pretty much anticipating that shortly um, the access to space will be significantly cheaper than it is uh, has been for the last some decades. Uh, in China, in Japan, uh, in the United Kingdom, at the European Space Agency, there are ongoing studies and uh, research and development all relating to space solar power because of the prospective importance of affordable and abundant energy, uh, both in cislunar space and its prospects for uh, safe and effective delivery to markets on Earth at a moment when there's tremendous interest and need for new uh, carbon net zero energy sources that are 24-7 and can supplement intermittent energy sources such as wind and, and salt ground solar and, and even hydro. Um, for the last couple of years, NASA has been undertaking an assessment um, in large measure, I think, because of all these this international activity, and there's been a lot of interest in what it might uh, say and how it might approach the problem, and, and 
there's sort of a traditional joke, which is, you know, in the United in the United in the United States, uh, the Department of Energy works on ground energy, and NASA works on space stuff, and neither one is really responsible for space energy for Earth. And so uh, there's been a lot of interest in what NASA's report might might end up um, articulating, how it might address it, what it might conclude. And the report came out on uh, January 11th, uh, more than two years after it was kicked off. And um, if if you if your listeners if they have not yet had a look at it, um, what you will find in looking at it is that. It's very professional looking. It looks very authoritative. Um, the authors are predominantly several uh, contractors for NASA headquarters. Um, the, the findings and recommendations, recommendations for future activities by NASA are all pretty reasonable. But the numbers uh, that they've come to in terms of the economics of space solar power and the time frame for space solar power are are completely inconsistent with any other studies done by any other space agency around the world that has undertaken this kind of, of um, examination. Uh, the study basically concludes, well, basically assumes, doesn't conclude, it assumes Space solar power could not be undertaken until after the year 2050, 26 years from now. And in the assumptions, there are several very, um, I say, telling uh, uh, examples. One, for example, it, uh, I don't, I, I don't know if your show has addressed or talked about the the coming era of Starship and other reusables, but um, in the in the NASA study uh, of space solar power, there is an assumption that in 2050, the cost of launch to low Earth orbit will be the same as it is today. And so about $1,000 a kilogram to low Earth orbit, approximately. Uh, and there is an assumption that uh, only uh, chemical propulsion will be used to transport uh, solar power satellite pieces from low Earth orbit to high Earth orbit. And so for each launch to geostationary Earth orbit, there is an assumption that it will require something like six or eight launches of a Starship-type tanker for each launch of payload to geo at $1,000 a kilogram um, to LEO. And that the the cargo vehicle going from Leo to Geo must be expendable, i.e., disposed of after each trip, so that you have your 747 freighter. It takes seven forty seven 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 forty seven flights to fuel it up, and when your 747 gets to where it's going, you throw it away. Um, and 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 another one which is quite a telling a thin assumption. This doesn't come from any of the studies that anybody has done. Um, another assumption is that the lifetime of the um, solar power satellite platform is no more than 10 years, 
But in order to have the solar power, so you have to have a completely new solar power satellite every 10 years, but there is no cost savings through the mass production of the millions of modules for the solar power satellite pieces per se. So you, um, uh, there's a, there are another couple of ones. There's, there's a $40 billion investment in removing the, I think it's for, it's hard to tell in some cases. I think it's for removing the, the dead solar power satellites after 10 years, but there's also um, $130 billion for maintenance on the solar power satellites that only last 10 years and, and, and on and on. So there's just this whole string of assumptions that are the worst possible of the worst possible cases all taken in combination uh, to result in, um, and I'll just give you a bottom line number, um, the total cost, and they looked at a couple of different cases. Uh, so I'll give you the better of the two. A total investment of $300 billion to achieve 2,000 megawatts, 2 gigawatts. So that's a, if I've done the number correctly, it's a hundred and, so $300 billion for 2 gigawatts. So that's like um, $150 per watt for the installed power of the solar power satellite. In 1979, when NASA did its original studies, um, the cost was on the order of $500 billion in today's dollars, but you got 300 gigawatts. So the cost was about $1.50 per watt estimated. And that might not have been a, a, the right number, but it, but it was on that order. And it, so $150 per watt today versus $1.50 a watt 50 years ago. Um, or, well, well, sorry, uh, today's 2023. This was 1980, let's call it. So 40, 43 years ago. And then by the time it's 2050, add another 26 years to that. So um, the the assumptions that were made led to a a what has to be somehow have been intended to be a foregone conclusion that this is very non-economical. And see, look, I I can show you how it's non-economical because all these numbers are really bad and big numbers, but they're the numbers that were assumed as opposed to resulting from any actual study done by anybody. You have a listener question. Can I stick it in here and ask? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Todd is in San Diego, and he says, John, most reports uh, usually have an index or something where they tell you about footnotes and tell you how assumptions were made or where they got the information for the assumptions. Uh, like if you're looking at financial plans for a venture capital venture. Are there any explanations for the assumptions, or do they just expect you to take it at face value because NASA put it in the report, but there's no route to that assumption? There is a, there is a lengthy uh, set of references in one of the annexes at the end of the report but but frankly the the um the references are um it's really more of a, a a 
a limited bibliography because the references don't refer to either uh, numbers or sentences or paragraphs or pages or sections in the report. So it, it really is left for a, 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 an exercise for the student to try to figure out where did all of this stuff come from and how does it relate to anything? Well, so my question would be, they have to know who's reading this thing. So, so they have to know people who know how to write reports and papers and and dissertations and theses and know how to do this and know how to footnote stuff. Why the hell would they do this? They have to know they're going to get slammed on it and no one's going to take them seriously. I, I honestly, I have no idea. I, I, I know that going back to my joke in the beginning of, of the hour, but I, I really know that uh, I know very perfectly well. NASA wants to do space stuff and aeronautics and science and, DOE wants to work on the energy system that it's always worked on, so that makes space solar power kind of a, a weird topic in the United States. But the the those how they approach this and the extravagance with which the assumptions were made is so stupendous that um, I I don't know what they expected, frankly. I. It's it's odd. It's, as I described in another interview, I said, it's just weird. Do they have a system where people can comment to them on it, or they expect... Oh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a closed book at the moment. It, it was, it, it took, um, it's been almost a year in review and discussion after it was initially drafted. Um, the methodology was in place about not, uh, 18 months ago and was, presented at the IAC, International Astronautical Congress, in the fall of 2022. And then it just kind of went invisible for a year or so. Um, and then suddenly, without any opportunity for external review or comment or input, uh, then this report appeared last uh, Thursday of week before last. You have another email from Jerry in Tucson. And he says, is this designed to kill financial and economic interests in space solar power? Is there anything the community can do to rewrite this report with realistic assumptions so that it doesn't damage the potential of the industry, especially on fundraising? Yeah, there's certainly um, I, I think the, the report as such, this, this specific document with these specific uh, assumptions and that particular methodology, I think that's, that's just done. That I don't know of any plans uh, within the agency for any follow-on or other. They, there are some discussions of things that might be done in the future, and, but, but I don't know of any plans to actually pursue any of that. Um, I do know that there is um, a lot of activity ongoing, uh, as I mentioned, in, in Japan, in China, uh, in the UK, uh, in uh, the European Space Agency, um, uh, so there is there is ongoing activity, and I, I don't I don't know of anyone who is um, uh, especially troubled by the details if they know the details. I think the biggest issue comes from the these numbers being published with you know with NASA's 
brand printed on the front because everybody respects NASA globally. And so you sort of take it as a given that NASA it is putting out material that it believes to be true. Um, and so that, that's a, that is an, that is going to have a negative impact, I think. But to answer the, the, the question, I think that what can be done here in the U.S. is to participate in ongoing analysis and studies. I think there's a, a need for an independent um, and peer-reviewed study on this same topic um, that would look at it in better – it was a better set of assumptions, let's say, uh, and probably a, some, a slightly more transparent process, um, and then put that on the table to sit and be available uh, right next to this current document. I, I don't think that advocacy alone is going to be sufficient because, you know, you've got one, one pile of numbers. You, you have to balance it with another pile of numbers, and that pile of numbers has to be uh, done through a better and more transparent process. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that will, in fact, be undertaken in the in the uh, uh, coming weeks and months. Um, you got a email from Dr. Charles Lurio, and and I have to reward it because it's we don't do politics on the space show; we're a nonprofit, and I'm not going to do it here. But mm -hmm. um, I guess the way I can reword Charles is. Um, is the future of space solar power in America based on the administration in office? Is it has it turned into a political football, or can it be evaluated on its engineering and scientific merit? Um, I think the um, I think it can be evaluated on its engineering and scientific merit. Um, I I believe that this particular um, document is a product of the process that it followed and the interests that were expressed someplace inside. I'm not inside the agency anymore. I, I left NASA uh, in 2005, but it's, uh, I'm at 19 years, um, but I spent 25 years at NASA. I know, I know how the system works. And I don't view this as a, a product per se of um, any, any political process. I've, I've seen good results with different politics inside, outside, uh, on the Hill. Um, and it, in many cases, comes down to the individuals who were, were someplace in the loop somewhere and not, and not to, not necessarily to, um, the, a particular uh, set of players outside the agency. From from your experience, do the policymakers and do the people within the agency or within the government that that do these reports, maybe not on space solar power, but on anything, are they up on the engineering needed to do the project? Are they up on how to do technical feasibility studies. I mean, are they competent in, in doing something like this, or do they just do it and and maybe they're not so competent on something technical or engineering or a big uh, 
you know, multi-year spanning technical project that a lot of it would be off Earth. Because yeah. it does require skills to be able to, to do this kind of thing. This, this, particular, this particular study really wasn't, um, did not in any meaningful way address the, the key technologies involved with space solar power. It, it took as a given two system concepts and just took them as, as starting points without, a, without considering things like wireless power transmission or, and, or structural uh, deployments or any of that stuff, things that you think would normally be part of a, a consideration of this subject. They just and, – and the two concepts, just the truth and advertising, one of them that they started with was, was one of mine called SPS Alpha. And the other one was a baseline concept that's been uh, studied over the last 20 years by the Japanese uh, Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, and by um, METI, uh, the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. So they took those two concepts, and then they wrapped them in a set of economic assumptions, like, like Starship will never – Reduce the cost of launch. The cost of launch will always be about the same as it is for a Falcon 9 reusable. It'll never be less. That, that doesn't necessitate that, that assumption and then applying that across the next 30 years isn't, um, it has nothing to do with, you know, concept studies or technology assessment or it's just an assumption. And so um, there's really there's I, I have the greatest respect for the uh, technical expertise uh, among numerous people at the agency. I don't think they had anything to do with this. I I think this was just an economic assessment, and the results are a direct consequence of the assumptions. Uh, listeners, we'd uh, love to have you call the show. Our lines are available. And plenty of time to do that. One eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. And of course, you can continue sending in uh, emails at Doctor Space D R S P A C E at the Space Show dot com. Uh, you have a note from Alexander, and Alexander's in New York City, and he said, "What is the state of the private sector?" trying to develop space solar power? Can they raise any substantial money for it? How can you assess where we are with the entrepreneurs? Yeah. So I think the um, the, the potential energy is enormous, but the, uh, the actual state of play is still very much immature. Um, eight or ten years ago, there were... Uh, right after, right, or eight or ten years ago, yeah, right after the Falcon 9 reusable first flew in uh, 2015, or, yeah, that's right, 2015, and after um, the commercial uh, cargo and commercial crew contracts got started, so there was some seed money and off-market opportunity from NASA, there were literally 150 different plays, investments, in Silicon Valley in different launch startups. Things like uh, Spin Launch and and uh, and um, uh, the uh, 
Virgin Galactic and um, Blue Origin and SpaceX and 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 and, and uh, Rocket Lab, and there were all these uh, projects that got started, and it was at the point then that you couldn't have a. I was told uh, at a at a meeting of the the venture capital people that I went to and and watched because I was very interested in the subject matter. Uh, you couldn't have a venture fund in um, out the back, outside the back gate of Stanford unless you included a launch company because it was like a sine qua non. It was a, a, a badge of being innovative that you would have money in a launch company. But before 2015, when launchers were basically assumed that they would always be the job of the government and innovation was not welcome here, then there were very few investments. So it took a catalytic event like the the first launch of the Falcon Reusable, Falcon 9 Reusable, and a market opportunity based on a, a legitimate business case. And then suddenly the floodgates were opened. Uh, we're not yet there with space solar power. We're at the same situation where there's an inordinate market requirement. The technologies have matured fabulously over the last 20 years. Um, but there's not that combination of a significant investment, a significant play by somebody. And, and you know, Jeff Bezos' staff assistant is listening. And Jeff, please think about this. Um, there's not a significant play that then all the other uh, venture or investors or seed angels, or I like to call them archangels, people with enough money to make a difference, um, can sort of say, okay, this is not a silly thing to invest in. So I think the technology is there, but it's, if it hasn't been catalyzed, hadn't crystallized yet, as, a, as, it, as it happened with the, um, the launch sector uh, a decade ago. Um, you have a caller on the phone who would like to talk to you. Good evening, caller. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this is Marshall, and my question uh, is back to your uh, reference to looking up indexes and uh, footnote references and so on. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to look at the footnotes and see what kind of uh, papers and uh, the math that uh, is implied in the footnotes. And uh, quite often I find uh, the footnote is basically some uh, person's speech or some <laughs> person's uh, political paper. And I was wondering if you uh, saw that in the index and footnotes that you were looking through. Well, the, the, this, uh, this references of uh, the appendix with the, with the quote references, which is really just a bibliography, has some perfectly good documents in it and, and studies and reports and so on that I'm quite familiar with, but I don't, I don't see any particular evidence that the, those, um, uh, those documents actually influence the course of the analysis. Aha. So, yes. They're, they're in there, but they're, they're just kind of in there. They seem to be in there more or less as, um, um, I don't want to, I don't really want to say window dressing, but as, as evidence that we know, we know the literature, but not necessarily, um, uh, that we, we didn't really it. Take, it, take it very seriously. 
Yeah. Uh, I've seen that before. I also have another comment, uh, particularly about uh, the uh, Falcon 9 costs as being uh, optimal and uh, it's going to stay constant for the next 20 years. Uh, gee, if that's the case, that means that Elon Musk is a total idiot because he's trying to do Starship and he's talking about cutting the price by a factor of 10. Hmm, somebody's got a problem there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's uh, it's not just that 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 it'll be Falcon Nine reusable forever, but that the Starship, when it's operational, will have the same cost per kilogram that um, that the Falcon Nine reusable has. So uh, if you do the if you do the math, and it says that uh, it'll be a thousand dollars a kilogram for a hundred thousand kilograms. Um, mm. For the starship, so so rather than rather than cutting the cost by a factor of five or ten, um, according to the assumptions made here, it it makes no difference. The starship, uh, New Glenn, uh, Rocket Lab, none of these launchers are going to reduce the cost of launch. Um, in the in the baseline case, in the in the report. Mm. That implies that there's a very large portion of the space community that's all excited about Starship. They're total idiots. Hmm, I don't particularly like that concept. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I don't think they care what you like, Marshall. Well, uh, I, there's people that have always told me they didn't care for what I was doing until I completed it, and then they, you know, kind of clapped and went, uh, that's nice, uh, here's your next project, uh, go away for six months. Uh, <laughs> it's life. Anyway, that's all the fun I have for tonight. Thank you very much, Marshall. Uh, Thank you. Listeners, you can call and talk to Dr. Mankins, 866-687-7223. Uh, Shelley? Uh, in Chicago has a note from you and says um, whenever space solar power comes up on the space show and other forums as well, some of the people say it'll never be competitive with nuclear, which is really the only true green energy and we should be going nuclear. And others say it will be competitive, especially in the short run for selective markets, but in the longer run for the overall general grid. How do you see the truth between space solar power and nuclear, both of which do not seem to be what our government wants us to use? So, so the advantage, there's a tremendous um, advantage for nuclear where you can use it. Um, I think uh, probably uh, if you, if you look at energy as a global challenge as opposed to only an issue here in the U.S., then you need to look at uh, energy in sub-Saharan Africa, and, uh, energy across Southeast Asia, and energy in India, and energy in all these places where um, it's hard to see how there will be adequate geopolitical stability to deploy the, the needed tens of thousands of nuclear reactor power systems to satisfy a, an equitable and high quality of life for the billions of people around the world who today are, you know, cooking their dinners with sticks that they, they gather, uh, you know, during the afternoon before they have to make dinner. 
It's, I, I, I tend to view energy as a, as a global challenge. I think the, the kinds of um, markets where you see the greatest demand for energy are the ones that are the most indicative of um, where, the, where the technology is, is being drawn by the market. And those are places where they want lots of power, they want it soon, and they want it to be steady, reliable, 24-7. Because they want to build cities, they want to build factories, they want to have lights and power in their homes, all of those things. Um, solar and wind are, because of the massive investments over the last 25 years, now the cheapest sources of power that you can buy. They're substantially cheaper than nuclear, but they are not 24-7. They are not uh, reliable. They're not available at a, at a rate that is meaningful for most societies. And that's the real challenge in these places that I mentioned. So I think the um, the way that I see space solar power playing a role, I, I see nuclear, nuclear needs to be used wherever you can use nuclear with safety and effectiveness and and um, uh, and economically, but in many places, um, wind and solar are uh, the cheapest form of energy most of the time. Uh, I, here in California, where I live, we've we've had overcast for the last week. If I was running my home on solar, uh, I wouldn't have had any power since uh, the beginning of last week. That's that's not that's no way. And the same thing is true in in um, in Berlin, in London, in Chicago, you're going to have overcast for weeks at a time. This is the place where space solar power shines because the power station is in orbit and you can deliver the power to the market on the ground when and where it is needed without massive investments in um, uh, power lines and the dedication of the land underneath those power lines. For power lines, that will be used only a tiny fraction of the time. So I think that I personally I see, uh, again, nuclear wherever you can, but uh, wind and solar are very, very nice, but they don't work when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. And so space solar power can be very highly complementary as a dispatchable form of affordable and uh, clean energy when and where it is needed uh, from from space to large sectors of the market on the ground. How how long are we, how far away are we from an operational space solar power producing system? Uh, we have the technology, so if someone really want to do it, I know there is one company trying to do it, um, at least one company, how how far out is this? Are we looking at ten years, five years, twenty years, or who knows? So, yeah, I think I think with a uh, with a, a judicious investment on the order of a couple of hundred million dollars, uh, that the first um, operational small scale demonstration could be in space uh, within four to five years. I think that the first pilot plant could be in space and operational within uh, seven to nine years. 
and that uh, full-scale power plants could be begin to be deployed within 10 to 12 years. And uh, there's a the strategy uh, that that uh, I've been working on and that others have have also been pursuing uh, is called a hypermodular architecture for space systems, where the space system is like the solar power satellite, this STS Alpha that I mentioned, comprises very large numbers of smaller modules that are mass-produced and assembled robotically in space. Um, and so you get the economies of mass production and therefore drastically lower costs. And that's what allows you to move forward in, in that rapid uh, scenario that I just described. Now, I do want to say that you would not have, if, if you remember 20 years ago, it was a big deal to find a USB drive that had a um, you know a megabit of of storage, whereas today you can go to the uh, electronic store, the, the, the you know Best Buy or some other store, and you can buy a USB drive with a terabyte of storage. It's insane. But so in, in but the, the the USB drive came along earlier, and then over the course of um, uh, time and with the driving the drivers of the market. The technology, the chip, just got better and better and better and better. Um, I believe space solar power can be done the same way. The very first demo is going to be relatively expensive and relatively small power. The first pilot plant is going to be cheaper and more power, megawatts of power. And as you go through the industrial development of this new sector, every couple of years there's going to be new technology on the market just it's Moore's Law. Moore's Law will come to play because these are large, solid-state electronic devices. And uh, you just need to start it, start the ball rolling, and um, and the, uh, elect- the electronics industry will make it happen. Do you see um, these first companies being uh, United States, American companies, or does it matter? I certainly hope so. I think I think the technology base to do these things is absolutely in the U.S. I I, I will say though I, I hope it wouldn't be the U.S. alone because um, just like aviation is a global industry with global markets and global um, companies who are involved in the manufacture and the operation of um, big airliners, small jet aircraft and of all sizes, both the propulsion systems, the materials, the avionics, everything. I think space solar power has to be the same way. But I absolutely hope to goodness that <laughs> I hope to God that, that it's not done without the U.S. because um, this is a sector that's going to be wildly important. Uh, listeners, there's still time if you want to pick up the phone and call and speak to John, 1-866-687-7223. You can continue sending email, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Cindy in Houston says, I recall going back to possibly Clinton, possibly for sure Obama. There were people that had a direct ear for the government including the National Science Advisor on 
advocating space solar power with the National Space Society and other organizations. And, of course, nothing really happened. It doesn't appear that National Science Advisors care much for the idea, regardless of what administration they're in, and it doesn't seem to impress administrations, regardless of what orientation they might be, because it doesn't happen at a government level, even though they see it gaining some momentum in other governments, some of which are our allies and some of which are our adversaries. What is there about the U.S. government and technical people in the government that turns them off to space solar power? That's a great question. Um, I, I think there are really, um, I guess, three three major factors. One, which is true for all governments, all governments, all administrations, but also Congress people, they want to see things go forward that with their uh, fingerprints on them that can happen while they're still in the chair. And space solar power has always appeared to be the kind of thing that's going to take a very long time. Um, so that's, that's one negative for any individual decision maker. Uh, in the U.S. in particular, because the studies that were done in the 1970s, which were quite substantial and involved a great many people, um, NASA industry, uh, DOE people, um, and because those were those were premature, that was too early. The space shuttle hadn't hadn't even flown yet, let alone uh, reusable launchers. And so there was a lot of backlash for a lot of people who came away from that experience with a very negative uh, view of the subject of space solar power, and that. Uh, negative um, feelings would manifested in in damage to their careers. I knew people who 35 years later were are still were still very negative on space solar power because they worked for somebody who was whose career was damaged because they had worked on it in the U.S. back in the in the late 70s. So that's a that's a second uh, consideration, which is a big negative. Um, it's, a, it's just a personal fact that you know if you if you were involved or you worked for somebody who's who who ended up being ridiculed because they worked on solar power satellites in 1979, you remembered that experience when you were a young engineer. Uh, and thirdly, uh, there's the the in the U.S. especially uh, the point that I made uh, a few minutes ago that we don't have a a significant. Um, investment in R&D for space commercialization. Uh, we, have, um, we have NASA, which does astronauts, and it does earth science and space science, and it does aeronautics. And we have DOE that does energy for terrestrial markets on the ground. But there really is no part of the government whose job is, is this kind of thing. It kind of falls through the cracks. So the combination of um, it's going to take a long time, it really isn't going to benefit me. Back when I was involved, I know this was a bad idea uh, because I, I learned that 25 years ago and nothing has changed, even though, frankly, everything has changed in, in commercial space. 
Uh, or finally, I, I'm busy. I got my job to do. I do, you know, Mars rovers. I'm, I'm not doing this. I've got, I've got to do aeronautics research. I'm, I'm not looking for something new to spend money on. I've got, not have enough money as it stands. Uh, uh, Jackson, Denver, Colorado says, uh, from time to time, David has an entrepreneur on who has a space solar power company that is raising money and bending metal. Uh, and I'm wondering if you're familiar with Virtuous Solus. Does a small company like that, even when they're raising money, have a chance to survive in this kind of an industry and environment? I think they absolutely have. I, I, I know I know the folks at Virtuous Solus, um, and I'm familiar with their system concept. Um, and uh, I think there is an opportunity, but it's uh, going to require some fairly patient capital and uh, some fairly deep pockets and, um, and, a, and a willingness not to be discouraged. Um, just, like, just like in the early days, uh, Elon and SpaceX were not discouraged by the fact that NASA had no interest in developing a reusable launch vehicle. So, so SpaceX went ahead and just did it themselves. Uh, that's that's going to have to happen here in the U.S., I'm afraid. Well, John probably doesn't have the deep pockets that Musk had. <laughs> so so that that's a, a, a big hurdle for a small company, even if it has good tech and good people. Yeah. If I had deep pockets, I'd, I'd spend, the, spend the money on my own concept. And... So, what would your concept be? Oh, it's it's the one that was uh, was uh, um, lambasted in the NASA report. Unfortunately, it's called SPS Alpha. It's a solar power satellite by means of arbitrarily large phased array. Uh, it's a it's a large platform uh, that would uh, use microwave uh, transmitters to send the energy to the Earth, uh, and um, the uh, it, if you if you want to uh, look at images of it, it's been covered quite a bit. There was a very nice article about space solar power in the New York Times last fall that included a very nice illustration of my concept. And it's it's hard to describe in the absence of an image. Do you have it up on a website? Do you have a website that we can go visit? Uh, I'll, I, David, I can, I can gladly send you a, a copy of one of the images and, and you could post it and people could come to the, your website and see it there. Okay. Yeah, please do that and I'll post it up on, on our, on our blog and, uh, and we will do that. Um, it seems to me that, um, that the U.S. government should not be in the business of picking winners, but, but, re- Funding uh, innovation and technology uh, of all sorts, and sort of let markets sort things out. So I don't know why they won't get in high gear on nuclear, and why they won't get on high gear in R and D on space, solar, and maybe something else will come down the line. But they shut it out before we we ever get far enough to know what the outcome is, and you can't know what the outcome is until you try it. And we're not close to being able to try it yet. And, of course, the U.S. government has deeper pockets, even though it's on borrowed money right now, than the rest of us. What, what the hell is wrong with 
not picking winners and putting public money into R&D projects, uh, hoping that some of them work and improve the country and, and improve the world. Yeah, I I understand the frustration, and I I would just take I would go one one sentence further or one one thought further, and that is to say that even even though you don't know exactly what the best technology is or the best design, nevertheless you can pretty clearly see based on how things are going in space and especially near Earth space that there's going to be a whole lot of activity by a whole lot of players, and whoever has megawatts of energy at an affordable price at the moon and in near-Earth space is going to be in a a preeminent position. And why wouldn't we want that to be us? Um, I I can't answer that question because I would think you, you would want it to be us, but... That doesn't seem to be the way it, it keeps unfolding, and uh, I find it very frustrating. Um, Alan uh, is Portland, Oregon, and he says years ago, I believe the Air Force wanted to study space solar power for uh, possibly replacing heavy equipment and batteries that needed a lot of energy for their troops in the field. I think this was after Desert Storm. What are the military uses for space solar power, and can that be a driver for it? Yeah, the, so there have been there has been a development program uh, through the Air Force Research Lab. There's been technology R and D at the Naval Research Laboratory. Um, those activities uh, have been, uh, in particular, uh, focused around either. Uh, uh, specific technologies for wireless power transmission or um, the uh, military applications in the field, as, as the question suggested. They're really not relevant for um, commercial power. Um, the, there, are, there are a number of things that are really important for commercial power, like being able to provide power to markets when the sun's not shining and and provided pretty much any time somebody wants it. Uh, for military applications, they're 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 pretty happy with uh, with the idea of delivering power on a regular basis, but not necessarily continuously. So you don't want to have to have batteries that are going to stand up for you know ten days or a week. Um, but but you're okay if you only get power every six hours, you know, as a satellite goes around the Earth. So. Um, the, the requirements are uh, sufficiently different, such that in the in the case of the Air Force program, it, it's uh, you can look it up if your if your listeners care to. It's called Fighter. Um, the architecture, the design of that particular system, is not really um, very friendly towards commercial markets. So the the component technology is is relevant. It's good research. But it's not really on the path any any more than, for example, um, the um, uh, you know Minuteman rocket, which is a rocket and is a perfectly good part of the the nuclear triad and defense that has defended the U.S. for for decades. That that's not a particularly good candidate for low cost launch to, of commercial payload. 
So similar technology, similar functionality, very different market. Um, listeners, there's still time if you want to get a call in to John, uh, 866-687-7223. And uh, the same with email, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, Henry is in Phoenix, Arizona, and he says many of us are concerned that space solar power would also be a weapon, would be environmentally unsound for wildlife and for birds, and the excessive number of rocket launches that would be required to get the infrastructure into space would be very toxic for our atmosphere. Are any of these real concerns? Are they being mitigated somehow? Or should space solar power be tabled until these concerns are under control? So the, the, um, I'm going to speak now to the, to the, the answer to those questions based on the, the work that I've been involved in over the last 30 years rather than the, the NASA report, which is where we started our conversation this evening. Okay. Um, if you, if you choose wisely, and by wisely I mean choose lasers, no. Choose microwaves, yes, for the wireless power transmission. So microwave wireless power transmission can, in fact, be implemented such that the power density of the microwave transmission at Earth is a fraction of the energy intensity of summer sunlight at noontime. And, and, and it doesn't, and it's very long wavelength. The wavelengths of the microwave energy are, so it's less intense and the wavelengths are very long. They're, they're like the, the wavelengths are like the, the width of your hand rather than being nanometers that can cause dissociation of chemical bonds. So all the studies that have been done, numerous studies with um, both organisms that are, that are plants and animals, show that there's no um, mutagenic, no cellular damage from uh, low-intensity microwave transmissions. The um, physics of, um, of, of highly precise microwave power beaming are such, it's called diffraction-limited optics. It's such that you actually can't focus the beam any more tightly than a certain uh, focus. So it'll, if you can't make it more intense than some maximum value that is inherent in the frequency that you choose and uh, um, the size of the transmitter. So if somebody wanted to make a weapon out of it, it would be obvious to everybody that that's what they were doing. You couldn't, you couldn't take a system that was designed and developed to, de to deliver commercial energy and somehow, you know, um, weaponize it like something in a James Bond movie. So, but um, on the second point, uh, the uh, concepts that are being looked at today would require on the order of um, per gigawatt something like 30 Starship launches. So, and, and that's not a precise number. That's it's like that number. So it's not a it's not a stupendously large number of launches. It and the amount of, for example, um, 
CO2 emissions from the launch of the platform uh, would be offset by the carbon neutral energy that would be delivered in a matter of weeks. So you get you get energy uh, payback for the launch itself in a matter of weeks, not years. So space solar power, because it's 24-7, it delivers power constantly, is actually far um, less carbon intensive than terrestrial solar, which only operates when the sun is shining. Okay. Um, wildlife, is is that a concern? Oh, and, and because of the low intensity, that that all the studies that have been done, all the research, the wildlife, birds, uh, insects, uh, plants would not be harmed by the would not be harmed by the bean. There would there would be warming, and so um, you'd have to keep track of of uh, birds wanting to nest on the receiver. I think that would be a major problem, especially in the wintertime. You're going to have to keep the birds off of the darn thing. Uh, because otherwise they're 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 never want to going to want to leave it because it's going to be nice and toasty. Uh, and I guess there, there are technologies to do that to, with the so oh, there 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 are nice technologies that have been developed over the years. So they're very simple and passive. It's little little um, little spiky things that you put on top of of meshes that keep keep birds from being able to make their nests on you. So um, don't harm the birds. They don't harm the birds. Uh, I know we're we're at our hour point, and um, uh, you know I I've been doing the space show. We're in our 23rd year, and we're coming up on 4,200 shows. And space solar power has been mentioned almost since day one, and probably well over 50% of the shows at least have a mention of it. And um, so my so I'm a business guy. That's what my academic degrees are in. And I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist, and uh, I'm so-so in math. So, um, but from where I'm sitting, I hear and see go by the wayside, and sometimes something sticks, like virtuous solace, but not very often. Uh, great ideas, crappy ideas, foolish ideas, an enormous a, a lot of well-intentioned rhetoric, and and uh, a lot of really foolish stuff. But what I don't see is action. So, and I, I don't necessarily believe that giving a peer-reviewed talk at an AIAA conference or the Space Frontier Foundation or the Mars Society is necessarily action, although it can lead to that. So, what's the the believer, the the advocate who understands all of this and space? What are they to do? How? How can they implement action? Because it's clear to me, I mean, you've been doing this more than my 23 years, and a lot of other people have been doing that for twice my 23 years. When did Peter Glazer come up with his idea? So 1968. Okay, so lots more than 23 years. So what what's a, a fella or a gal to do that wants to see change in action? other than just talk about it or write a paper uh, or write yeah. a newspaper article? Or is there an outlet that leads to action? Um, if you if you have the opportunity to participate in events like National Space Society events, then certainly I would recommend, I would urge people to do that. 
if there's an opportunity to communicate with your uh, representatives, then I would urge people to do that. Uh, if if you happen to have uh, the resources and you want to invest in space solar power, uh, I would recommend that you do that. Um, but I, I wouldn't take, uh, in this particular instance and with this particular document that we're talking about today, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I, I would continue if, if I were one of your listeners, I am one of your listeners, but um, if I were one of your listeners, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I would continue to support better and more detailed studies, investments, development, demos, action. Uh, is there demand for that kind of action? And uh, from where you are with the industry, do you see demand for startups? Um, do they think there's a market demand that would uh, that would lead them to want to risk capital? Are, are you are you seeing markets sort of starting to more? I, I, I gave you I gave you the good news and the bad news. The, the bad news first. The bad news is it's still pretty. But the good news is it's stronger than it's ever been before because all now, the, now all the pieces are in place. You know, mass production of, of space systems in factories is essential to solar power satellites. It's now being done for Starlink and OneWeb and, and Kuiper systems. Uh, low-cost reusable launchers, it, essential for space solar power. Now people are flying them and others are developing uh, fast behind SpaceX. Uh, robotic assembly in space. Uh, robotics has made such progress in the last five years. It's incredible. Um, so um, it is a there is a tremendous and growing interest in large commercial space ventures, which I believe are uh, are is going to lead to um, space solar power. I just I just hope it's here in the U.S. as well as internationally. I, I have a. 11th hour email that I'll read to you, and uh, this will be the last one. Connie says she's in San Francisco, and uh, Connie says, I don't understand, and I see it all the time with my friends who are absolutely 100% committed to the, to the Green New Deal, to electric vehicles, to all of this, except they are not committed to, don't want to learn about, don't believe in and think anything space-related, including space solar power, is garbage and for the rich like Elon Musk. And the answer has to be in solar and wind and whatever else can come about from the Green New Deal. Can you explain the disconnect between what appears to be environmentally motivated people and their failure to understand or grasp or even want to find out more about space solar power. It seems that they're made to order, but they're not. Yeah. So this is this is again a, a tremendous topic, and it's a nice one to wrap up on. Um, there is a predisposition. So uh, twenty four years ago, twenty three years ago, I was a co-author on a paper in the journal Science, basically making the argument. This is circa 2001, 
that existing and planned conventional technologies were not going to be enough. We were not going to get off carbon in a timely way with ground-based solar, ground-based wind, and conventional solutions. And it took 18 months to get that article through the peer review process in the journal because there was so much opposition to that message. And it is still true today that people who are in the renewable energy community are dedicated to solving the problem, but they don't want to be told that their existing toolkit can't do the job. They want to believe that it's, you know, it's ground-based solar with massive amounts of investments in hydrogen, that it's ground-based solar with stupendously large arrays and massive investments in, uh, in lithium-ion batteries, that it's, and on and on and on. And um, the, it's an it's a, it's a unwillingness, it's an unwillingness to, under, to appreciate that the thing that you've been pushing on for all this time can't actually solve the problem. And it's only now, especially in terms of this, the sort of the, you've heard of the, the last mile. Right. Or, you know, getting over, getting, no, this is the last hour. The last three or four weeks of rainy weather, overcast, is what prevents the adoption, the more massive adoption of wind and, and ground-based solar. Because you can have weeks of calm air and you can have weeks of overcast. And if you're responsible for the grid for a, for a megacity, for 5 million people, you can't afford that. You can't afford to shut down the city for a week. And so, and you're, and you can't afford to have two or three independent technology solutions just in case. And so, um, it, it's really preventing the, the deployment of these conventional technologies as wonderful as they have become. Um, and, but no one wants to admit that. Um, and the other, the other issue is, of course, that everybody believes space solar is so long term. It's, you know, decades and decades away. And the, the NASA report really played into that by saying nothing could be done for 26 years, uh, even though it's not true. Uh, and they, they, they see the problem anxiously with a great deal of anxiety. And they want a solution now. And they, they don't appreciate that space solar power and the relevant technologies have made so much progress in the last decade that we're no longer 30 years away. We are at most five years away, maybe less, from a significant demo, several more years to a pilot plant and several more years to beginning the deployment of space solar, uh, for, on to global markets. And at, and at the lowest carbon emissions achievable. So it, it's just a it's just a um, an unwillingness to to accept that the solution that they've always believed in isn't actually going to solve the problem. Would space solar have kept the EV cars charged in the east? Well, the nice thing about well. space solar is. Uh, you know, the time when you want to drive EV cars, you want to drive EV cars at night or you want to drive them in cold weather. Well, if you've got space solar, you can beam the energy right to where you need it 
and um, and heat up the local the heat up the the uh, the local receiver. Um, so yeah, I I well if you if you parked your if you parked your EV out where it's you know thirty degrees below zero and you're 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 basically just stuck until you warm it up. But um, but certainly space solar would have been able to deliver electricity in at large scale solar electricity at large scale um, everywhere where the um, where there were problems with the EVs. The other thing about space solar, which is nice with regard to electric vehicles, is most people want to drive their electric vehicles during the day and recharge them at night. That's out of sync with the diurnal cycle, with the, the day-night cycle. Space solar power can be delivered at night, and that's a big advantage. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's let's hope um, we can see some some fast-moving changes and. Uh, we can continue to point out uh, flaws with the NASA report, but uh, I remember uh, in my business school and my dissertation classes and stuff going back decades ago, a report with those kinds of assumptions and without the detail backing them up would have never been approved. So yeah. I, I hate to think that academia has slouched so much where that's the standard for today. So I'm just going to hope that it's an aberration or they, I don't know what they did, but that's not the way things are supposed to be done, uh, even with controversial yeah. things. It, it's just, it, like, like I said at the beginning, it's just weird. John, I want to thank you very much for returning to the space show and talking about these important topics. I hope to see you at a conference or someplace soon and talk to you again down the road on the space show. And we appreciate your being here. Thank you, David, and thanks so much to all of your listeners for their uh, participation and and for the uh, running over as we did. Okay, thank you. Um, listeners, that's it for tonight. So uh, everybody have a great week, and as we like to say on the Space Show, keep looking up. And good night from John, David, and the Space Show.